Chapter 3 Time and Beyond Time It is a very silly idea that in reading a book you must never skip. All sensible people skip freely when they come to a chapter which they find is going to be no use to them. In this chapter, I am going to talk about something which may be helpful to some readers, but which may seem to others merely an unnecessary complication. If you are one of the second sort of readers, then I advise you not to bother about this chapter at all, but to turn on to the next. In the last chapter, I had to touch on the subject of prayer, and while that is still fresh in your mind and my own, I should like to deal with the difficulty that some people find about the whole idea of prayer. A man put it to me by saying, I can believe in God, all right. But what I cannot swallow is the idea of him attending to several hundred million human beings who are all addressing him at the same moment. And I have found that quite a lot of people feel this. Now the first thing to notice is that the whole sting of it comes in the words, at the same moment. Most of us can imagine God attending to any number of applicants if only they came one by one and he had an endless time to do it in. So what is really at the back of this difficulty is the idea of God having to fit too many things into one moment of time. Well, that is of course what happens to us. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along, and there is room for very little in each. That is what time is like. And of course you and I tend to take it for granted that this time series, this arrangement of past, present, and future, is not simply the way life comes to us, but the way all things really exist. We tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving on from past to future just as we do. But many learned men do not agree with that. It was the theologians who first started the idea that some things are not in time at all, Later, the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he need not listen to them all in that one little snippet which we call 10.30. 10.30, and every other moment from the beginning of the world, is always the present for him. If you like to put it that way, he has all eternity in which to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. That is difficult, I know. Let me try to give something, not the same, but a bit like it. Suppose I am writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her work, next moment came a knock at the door. For Mary, who has to live in the imaginary time of my story, there is no interval between putting down the work and hearing the knock. But I, who am Mary's maker, do not live in that imaginary time at all. Between writing the first half of that sentence and the second, I might sit down for three hours and think steadily about Mary. I could think about Mary as if she were the only character in the book and for as long as I pleased, and the hours I spent in doing so would not appear in Mary's time, the time inside the story, at all. This is not a perfect illustration, of course, but it may give just a glimpse of what I believe to be the truth. God is not hurried along in the time stream of this universe any more than an author is hurried along in the imaginary time of his own novel. He has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you had been the only man in the world. The way in which my illustration breaks down is this. In it, the author gets out of one time series, that of the novel, only by going into another time series, the real one. But God, I believe, does not live in a time series at all. His life is not dribbled out moment by moment like ours. With him it is, so to speak, still 1920 and already 1960, for his life is himself. If you picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one. We have to leave A behind before we get to B, and cannot reach C until we leave B behind. 
God, from above or outside or all round, contains the whole line and sees it all. The idea is worth trying to grasp because it removes some apparent difficulties in Christianity. Before I became a Christian, one of my objections was as follows. The Christians said that the eternal God who is everywhere and keeps the whole universe going once became a human being. Well then, said I, how did the whole universe keep going while he was a baby or while he was asleep? How could he at the same time be God who knows everything and also a man asking his disciples, who touched me? You will notice that the sting lay in the time words, while he was a baby. How could he at the same time? In other words, I was assuming that Christ's life as God was in time and that his life as the man Jesus in Palestine was a shorter period taken out of that time, just as my service in the army was a shorter period taken out of my total life. And that is how most of us perhaps tend to think about it. We picture God living through a period when his human life was still in the future, then coming to a period when it was present, then going on to a period when he could look back on it as something in the past. But probably these ideas correspond to nothing in the actual facts. You cannot fit Christ's earthly life in Palestine into any time relations with his life as God beyond all space and time. It is really, I suggest, a timeless truth about God that human nature and the human experience of weakness and sleep and ignorance are somehow included in his whole divine life. This human life in God is, from our point of view, a particular period in the history of our world, from the year A.D. 1 till the crucifixion. We therefore imagine it also as a period in the history of God's own existence. But God has no history. He is too completely and utterly real to have one. For, of course, to have a history means losing part of your reality, because it has already slipped away into the past, and not yet having another part, because it is still in the future. In fact, having nothing but the tiny little present, which has gone before you can speak about it. God forbid we should think God was like that. Even we may hope not to be always rationed in that way. Another difficulty we get if we believe God to be in time is this. Everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. But if he knows I am going to do so-and-so, how can I be free to do otherwise? Well, here once again the difficulty comes from thinking that God is progressing along the timeline like us, the only difference being that he can see ahead and we cannot. Well, if that were true, if God foresaw our acts, it would be very hard to understand how we could be free not to do them. But suppose God is outside and above the timeline. In that case, what we call tomorrow is visible to him in just the same way as what we call today. All the days are now for him. He does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them because, though you have lost yesterday, he has not. He does not foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them because, though tomorrow is not yet there for you, it is for him. You never suppose that your actions at this moment were any less free because God knows what you are doing. Well, he knows your tomorrow's actions in just the same way, because he is already in tomorrow and can simply watch you. In a sense, he does not know your action till you have done it, but then the moment at which you have done it, it is already now for him. This idea has helped me a good deal. If it does not help you, leave it alone. It is a Christian idea in the sense that great and wise Christians have held it, and there is nothing in it contrary to Christianity. But it is not in the Bible or any of the creeds, you can be a perfectly good Christian without accepting it, or indeed without thinking of the matter at all. Chapter 4. Good Infection I begin this chapter by asking you to get a certain picture clear in your minds. Imagine two books lying on a table, one on top of the other. Obviously, the bottom book is keeping the other one up, supporting it. It is because of the underneath book that the top one is resting, say, two inches from the surface of the table instead of touching the table. Let us call the underneath book A and the top one B. The position of A is causing the position of B. That is clear? Now let us imagine, 
it could not really happen, of course, but it will do for an illustration, let us imagine that both books have been in that position forever and ever. In that case, B's position would always have been resulting from A's position. But all the same, A's position would not have existed before B's position. In other words, the result does not come after the cause. Of course, results usually do. You eat the cucumber first and have the indigestion afterwards. But it is not so with all causes and results. You will see in a moment why I think this important. I said a few pages back that God is a being which contains three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube contains six squares while remaining one body. But as soon as I begin trying to explain how these persons are connected, I have to use words which make it sound as if one of them was there before the others. The first person is called the Father, and the second the Son. We say that the first begets or produces the second. We call it begetting, not making, because what he produces is of the same kind as himself. In that way, the word Father is the only word to use. But unfortunately, it suggests that he is there first, just as a human father exists before his son. But that is not so. There is no before and after about it. And that is why I have spent some time trying to make clear how one thing can be the source or cause or origin of another without being there before it. The Son exists because the Father exists, but there never was a time before the Father produced the Son. Perhaps the best way to think of it is this. I asked you just now to imagine those two books, and probably most of you did. That is, you made an act of imagination, and as a result you had a mental picture. Quite obviously, your act of imagining was the cause and the mental picture the result. But that does not mean that you first did the imagining and then got the picture. The moment you did it, the picture was there. Your will was keeping the picture before you all the time. Yet that act of will and the picture began at exactly the same moment and ended at the same moment. If there were a being who had always existed and had always been imagining one thing, his act would always have been producing a mental picture, but the picture would be just as eternal as the act. In the same way, we must think of the sun always, so to speak, streaming forth from the Father, like light from a lamp or heat from a fire or thoughts from a mind. He is the self-expression of the Father, what the Father has to say, and there never was a time when he was not saying it. But have you noticed what is happening? All these pictures of light or heat are making it sound as if the Father and the Son were two things instead of two persons. So that, after all, the New Testament picture of a Father and a Son turns out to be much more accurate than anything we try to substitute for it. That is what always happens when you go away from the words of the Bible. It is quite right to go away from them for a moment in order to make some special point clear, but you must always go back. Naturally, God knows how to describe Himself much better than we know how to describe Him. He knows that father and son is more like the relation between the first and second persons than anything else we can think of. Much the most important thing to know is that it is a relation of love. The father delights in his son, the son looks up to his father. Before going on, notice the practical importance of this. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Of course, what these people mean when they say that God is love is often something quite different. They really mean, love is God. They really mean that our feelings of love, however and wherever they arise, and whatever results they produce, are to be treated with great respect. Perhaps they are, but that is something quite different from what Christians mean by the statement, God is love. They believe that the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. 
I know this is almost inconceivable, but look at it thus. You know that among human beings, when they get together in a family, or a club, or a trade union, people talk about the spirit of that family, or club, or trade union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they are together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving which they would not have if they were apart. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Of course, it is not a real person, it is only rather like a person. But that is just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and the Son is a real person, is in fact the third of the three persons who are God. This third person is called, in technical language, the Holy Ghost or the Spirit of God. Do not be worried or surprised if you find it, or him, rather vaguer or more shadowy in your mind than the other two. I think there is a reason why that must be so. In the Christian life you are not usually looking at him, he is always acting through you. If you think of the Father as something out there, in front of you, and of the Son as someone standing at your side, helping you to pray, trying to turn you into another son, then you have to think of the third person as something inside you or behind you. Perhaps some people might find it easier to begin with the third person and work backwards. God is love and that love works through men, especially through the whole community of Christians. But this spirit of love is, from all eternity, a love going on between the Father and Son. And now, what does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Or, putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to, or even into, the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty, spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? But how is he to be united to God? How is it possible for us to be taken into the three personal life? You remember what I said in chapter 2 about begetting and making. We are not begotten by God, we are only made by Him. In our natural state we are not sons of God, only, so to speak, statues. We have not got zoe, or spiritual life, only bios, or biological life, which is presently going to run down and die. Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have His way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always has existed and always will exist, Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as He does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life He has, by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. <laughs>